continuing our study of Ezra and Nehemiah and just to kind of uh, remind us of kind of where we are right now. <clears throat> you know, we've, we found the, the story began with the, the exiles. There's, they were, had been in Babylon for 70 years. In the interim time, the Persians had come and conquered the Babylonians. And the Persian king said, you can go home. And not everybody went home. As a matter of fact, most people didn't go home. But about 40 to 50,000 went back, went back to Jerusalem. And what did they find there? Well, they found a city that was in ruins. Walls were gone, temple destroyed. I'm sure it was a, for those who remembered, it was a very, it was a very painful experience for them to go back. And, and the last they saw, you know, everything was still in its place. And now it was gone. For those who had never seen it, they had been born in Babylon, you know, for them, it was a different experience for sure. They're coming back and they had, they had read the scriptures and they had heard about all the wonders, but they had never seen with their eyes. And, and now they're there. And perhaps they're thinking like, you know, what can we make of this mess? Well, it's pretty amazing what they do. Immediately they, they begin to reinstitute the worship and the, the offerings and the sacrifices. And they do it at the very place in the, in where the temple had been. They lay the foundation. They face opposition. And then there's about an 18-year hiatus. And then another king comes and sets things right. They finish the temple. And even though I think if you're going through it and it's like about a two-decade period before the temple's finished, hey, two decades before you were in exile hundreds of miles away. It's a great start. But what often happens with great starts, it's, the question is, what's, what next? What next? What do we do? Well, we're going to, when we get to the text, we're going to jump about 50 years ahead in the story. And we're going to see what, what happened next. Before we get there, though, um, you know, you can see the title of the, of the sermon is The Importance of Teachers. And, and there's a question that I wanted to ask, which is, you know, in your life, who is the final authority on truth? I want you to really think about that. Who is the final authority on truth? I know like the, the quick answer is, oh, it's God. Oh, it's the Bible. Oh, it's this, it's that. But let me ask you a couple other questions as you think about this question. If all the smartest people in the world, smartest people in the world, believed something is true, does that make it true? What if all the most compassionate people in the world believed something was true? Would that make it true? What if all the holiest people in the world, the most Christian people that you, that you thought, like, these are the, the you know, cream of the crop, if they all believed something was true, does that make it true? The most educated, the most thoughtful, 
Would that make it true? What if everyone in the world agreed something was true? Does that make it true? The answer is no. It wouldn't make it true. Even if everyone agreed, it wouldn't, it would, it wouldn't, wouldn't make it true. But it would make it easier. Right? It's a lot easier if someone says, why did you do that? And you said, well, all the smartest people in the world said that's what I should do. Makes it easier, right? You have a, you know, you have a built-in excuse. If, you know, today there's supposedly some kind of game going on that a lot of people are excited about. And if, if a coach does exactly what everyone else would have done in that situation, even if it's wrong, no one criticizes him. Even if it's wrong. Because, you know, he did what all the other coaches would have agreed to do in that same situation. Makes it easier but it doesn't make it true. Well, the real world is even more complicated because all the smartest people don't agree on just about anything. All the most compassionate, holiest, educated, thoughtful, they don't agree. And so if they're not agreeing, how do you know what is true? The original question Who is the final authority on truth? I'm going to tell you the answer is the same for the vast majority of people and it's not what you might have thought. You are. You are. You've decided, you decide what is true. I hear people say that like, Yes, I'm going to listen to different people. I'm going to listen to what they have to say. And then I'm going to decide which is right. Who's the judge? You are. You decide what's true. You are the final authority on what is true for you. Now, some of you may not be this way, the minority. You know... I, I don't know these kind of marriages because mine is nothing like this. But you may have a spouse who says, whatever he says is true is true. Or whatever she says is true is true. And, you know, you don't think for yourself. You know, if hubby says it, if wife says it, it's true. There may be people like that. Maybe when you were a kid, you just thought everything your mom or your dad said was true. But for most of us, we decide. Let me ask you another question. If you, if as I'm saying, you have become the sole judge of truth in your life, do you trust yourself? Do you trust yourself with that decision? You've already seen the quote that flashed up on the screen, but there was this movie. Uh, I've never actually watched the whole movie. I just know the quote from the movie, and I've seen the scene from A Few Good Men. And if I could do a good Jack Nicholson, I might 
try to do that because I think he's the guy who delivers the line. But it's in this you know, court of law, um, in a military court of law where they're you know, dealing with this, this crime that's happened and, and all. But the line that Jack Nicholson says because you know, the Tom Cruise character is the lawyer trying to, trying to get you know, him to admit what he did and why he did it. And he says, you know, you want the truth? You can't handle the truth. Think about that. If somehow you've become the sole arbiter of truth, you get to decide what sources of information come in, you get to sort through it, and ultimately you judge. Can you handle the truth? Well, I think not only can we not handle the truth even if we wanted to, that even with the truth that we think we can handle, whether we know it or not, we will ultimately compromise the truth. We'll ultimately compromise the truth and we'll do it, you know, partly to kind of get along with others sometimes to serve a greater truth. Maybe you think the highest truth is that we just all get along. And so you're gonna take some of the less like acceptable parts of your belief and not really talk about them. Put them over here somewhere. Not really live them out. Maybe even change them. Even if you look at scripture, you're gonna look at scripture and you're gonna, you're gonna interpret scripture not based on what scripture says, but whether you know it or not, you may be interpreting scripture just so it kinda doesn't make you have to deal with things in your life or doesn't make you have to deal with unfortunate circumstances in your world. There's a word for this, by the way. And the word is syncretism. I didn't write the word down, so um, spelling doesn't count if you're taking notes. Do the best you can. But syncretism is this taking God's truth and adjusting it, compromising it, interpreting it in a way so that it fits in with your already held beliefs. It fits in with your already held practices, things that that you don't want to let go of or you think wouldn't be, you know, acceptable in modern society. Syncretism. And so we've, in our world, become the sole arbiters of truth even though we're woefully unqualified to do the job. And ultimately, whether we know it or not, we can be deceived or we can deceive ourselves into compromising truth. Well, before I let you off the very unhappy hook there, the text, we're going to, again, jump ahead, decades ahead. The, the temple was rebuilt and the people are still living there and they're doing what people do when they live in an area. They're 
building houses, starting, um, you know, businesses and economy. You know, there's a lot of subsistence living going on. So there, you know, farms and flocks and things like that are going on. They're getting married. They're having babies. People are dying. All those things are happening. They're happening for, for about 50 years. It's a long time. And finally, we're going to see where, where Ezra is going to be sent. Ezra is going to be sent because I don't understand why God waits 50 years. I don't understand all the important things that might have been happening in those 50 years. I only understand what the biblical text tells me. And what the biblical text tells me is that for the people to be reestablished, for the people to go from these scattered people in exile back here to become the people of God in the promised land, for that to happen, for them to transition from just being people to a nation, that certain key things had to happen. First of all, reinstituting the sacrificial system, the proper worship of God. Second of all, the building of the temple. And the third was the sending of Ezra. And when we talk about who Ezra is, we'll understand the premium God placed on the roles that Ezra played. And it's going to help us deal with this initial problem of how can we be the sole arbiters of truth for our own lives when we're woefully inadequate for the job. Ezra 7, verse 1 says this. Now after this, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, the son of Sariah, son of Azariah, son of Hilkiah, son of Shalom, son of Zadok, son of Ahitub, son, son of Amariah, son of Azariah, son of Marioth, son of Zechariah, son of Uzi, son, he made the uh, machine gun, son of Buki, son of Abishua, son of Phineas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the chief priest. You know, whenever we see these genealogies, we just kind of space out, um, realize they didn't space out, they actually recognize these names. And some of the ones would have recognized like immediately like Sariah, because he had been the last high priest before the Babylonians destroyed everything. In fact, they kill him. And they would have recognized some of these other names, but everybody would have recognized the name I think you should recognize if you've you know, been around church, been around the Bible for any period of time, and that is son of Aaron, the chief priest. What is this telling us? It's telling us that Ezra is being, being presented as a legitimate member in that line of the, the high priest, the chief priest. It doesn't give us every generation, okay? Just remember when the, when the Bible gives like genealogies, it doesn't necessarily give every generation, but it gives the noteworthy ones, ones that would have certainly been noteworthy to the original audience, and some of them we still see as very noteworthy. But then we see, it says, this Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses, 
that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. And the king granted him all that he asked, for the hand of the Lord, his God, was on him. He's described as a scribe. Now, what is a scribe? A scribe was someone who, who could have been, like, um, had a job in the Persian Empire. He could have been, like, a, we might call them, like, a, not really a secretary, but he would have been someone who was taking the official records and everything, obviously would have had to have been literate, you know, in multiple languages, etc. But he says, skilled in the law of Moses. So he's not simply talking about perhaps he worked for the king, but that he was skilled in the law of Moses. And, and a scribe was someone who would have devoted their lives to studying God's word. And in, a, and in addition to studying, they would, have, they would have devoted their lives to teaching God's word. Some of your English translations actually translate the word instead of scribe. They actually use the word teacher. And then, of course, as scribe suggests, which is what most people think that all a scribe did, was, is copy God's word, make copies or write it out. But he would have done all of this. It's, so we've gone from reestablishment of worship, all the festivals, building of the temple, now Ezra. And what does this tells, tell us? It tells us that God wants his people to live according to his word. One of the things you see throughout Ezra from the very beginning, you, you can go back and don't do it now, but later on go back and you can count how many times it says according to the law of Moses, according to the, God's law, according to the law of God. In some way or another, it, re- it repeats that phrase again and again in terms of what the people are doing. Whether it's the sacrifices, whether it's the observance of the f- Passover, whether it's the, even the construction of the temple and, and how it's going to be laid out. Everything's being done according to God's word. And now this, this leader that's coming, that's going to lead them into this next transition, this next phase, this leader is skilled in the law of Moses. He's, he's a priest. He's in the line of being the, of the high priest line. And he's skilled in the law of Moses. Now, some of us might go, well, okay, Didn't all, weren't all priests skilled in the law of Moses? The answer is no. In fact, if you back up about 150 years, we have this really weird story in the Bible um, under the reign of King Josiah, where, where they have been practicing the sacrifices for centuries, and they've been doing it um, without interruption, but they had lost the book of the law, and it had been lost for so long, when they finally found it, they didn't even know what it was. Can you imagine that? Losing something for so long, it's not like, oh man, I, I forgot I had that. No, it's like, you don't even know what it is. They, they didn't know what the law was, and yet they had been keeping all the sacrifices for centuries. They had been going through the motions, doing everything according to the sacrifices 
but they had lost the book of the law to the point that they couldn't recognize it when they found it. So just being in the priestly caste, just being in the priestly tribe, just being in the line of Aaron wasn't enough. It was important that, that, it, that, that God's word points out that Ezra was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses. And so what we're going to find here is we're finding what's being brought together is something that, again, I can't, I don't want to say this is why God did what he did. The Bible tells us God brought, you know, Babylon upon upon uh, Judah for judgment. That's what happened. But here's the other good thing that happened. They had lived for centuries with sacrifice without law. While they're in Babylon for about 70 years, they live with law without sacrifices. And that law that had been forgotten now becomes all that they have. All that they have is to now be able to go back and, and study and read this thing that they had lost and they had forgotten. And one of the great things that comes out of the exile is this renewed focus on the book of the law. This renewed focus on living according to God's word. Living out the covenant not simply by keeping the sacrifices. So it's a great thing. And so here at this beginning, this, this man, Ezra, he embodies both of those things. The priest, idea of the worship, the sacrifices, but also the law. And these two things are going to have to be, remain at the core of who the people are as they move forward. And so we have this leader who's provided by God to these people. And it's clear, because he wants his people to live according to his word. Verse 7, he says, And there went up also to Jerusalem in the seventh year of Artaxerxes, the king, some of the people of Israel, and some of the priests and Levites, the singers and gatekeepers, and the temple servants. And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. For on the first day of the first month, he began to go up from Babylonia, and on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem, for the good hand of his God was on him. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord, and to do it, and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. So one of the things we get to see is like, even in Babylon, they were maintaining not just the priestly caste, the priestly lines, they were continuing to, to train people to do all these other things. I mean, they were still training people to be gatekeepers. They didn't have gates. This is over 100 years. They, have, they continued to train people to be temple servants. They had finally rebuilt the temple after about 90 years. And these people, though, are not, they're not in Jerusalem they're over in Babylon. But they're maintaining these offices and these people go. Or they're ready to go when Ezra goes. 
what I want us to focus on is that verse 10, where it says, For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. So what is happening here? Not only does God want us to live according to his word, not only does God want us to know truth, God provides teachers to help us know his word. He provides teachers to help us know his word. We're talking about if, you know, you being the sole arbiter of truth in your life. Well, God doesn't just leave you. He just doesn't leave you to sort it out on your own. God provides teachers. But not, let me just make sure you understand this. Not everybody who claims the title of teacher is a teacher according to God's word. Not everybody who teaches is truly a teacher of truth and of God's word. I'm not saying that they teach false things. They might teach false things. But they're not teachers in the tradition of Ezra. Look at what it says here. He set his heart to study the law, to do it, and to teach it. Three steps. To study, to do it, to teach it. We have lots of people that want to teach, that want to skip one of the first two steps. Oh, there are some people that don't even want to spend time studying God's word. They just want to teach. They just want to jump right in and, hey, you know, um, you know I'm going to open the Bible and we're, I'm going to read it and I'm going to tell people what it means to me. That's not studying God's word. I'm not sure what that is. And there's other people that will study. They will put in, you know, hours and hours and hours of study and they'll, they'll spend months and years of their life studying, but they never live it. They never do it. Oh, they can break everything down. They can show you the, you know, the grammar. They can talk about the historical context. A lot of the stuff we do here, they can do all of that. And it's interesting, but they've never done it. In, you know, being in the kind of academic world for a while, having been like at the Southwestern Seminary, most of the professors at Southwestern Seminary don't just teach. There are a few that only teach, but most of them teach, and then they, they're involved in their churches, or they're even like maybe supply preaching, or, or interim pastoring, or, or they've had it in their background. They've never just, you know, gone from, undergraduate degree, master's, doctorate, professor, and that's all they've ever done, lived in the academic world. But there was like one I can think of who was that way. Now, when I did my PhD over in the UK, oh, that was different. There were lots of the professors that you kind of worried about because they never left that world. They didn't necessarily like ever have to see like like 
the consequences and the repercussions and the effects of their teaching. They could tell you. They could give you great, you know, great analysis, but they couldn't tell you from like their lives. Ezra does all of this. Sets his heart to study and to do and to teach. If we're going to, you know, be the healthy church we need to be, if we're going to be the church that's, that's able to like, you know, make a difference for Christ and for his kingdom in this world, we need to know truth. And that truth has to be taught to us by people who've not just studied God's word, but they are living God's word. There's not just, it's not just theory. It's not just principles. It's not just general understanding. You know, there's, um, you know, some pastors do this way better than I do. They, they share, you know, personal stories about, you know, things that, where they've kind of wrestled with some of this. And to me, those are, those, that's great. It's not just an illustration. It's telling me that, that they haven't just heard this stuff, they haven't just learned this stuff, they're not just telling you, but they've actually lived it, they've experienced it. I'm always drawn to the teacher that is not just presenting to me things that they've, they've never known, they've never experienced. It's like I said you know, a couple weeks ago, it's, one of the reasons, you know, is I'm coach, you know, I coach running and that I keep training because I want to be able to tell, you know, tell my runners and I want to be able to, to understand what they're going through, what they're feeling, but I also want to tell them that, yeah, I've done this. I just, I didn't just read it in a book. I just didn't get it from a clinic. I didn't, you know, watch a few videos. No, I'm. I'm doing it. And notice it's not saying Ezra's perfect, but it says he's set his heart on it. It's this phrase of saying, like, this is his focus, this is his direction. He could get things wrong. In fact, he will get things wrong. Like everyone else in the Bible, except for Jesus, you know, every other person who's human gets things wrong. He's going to get things wrong, but his heart is set on not just studying the law, but doing the law. It's hard for me to listen to a preacher or a teacher or sometimes when I worked in the academic world, you know, professors who would want to tell about the truth of the Bible, but not live it out. They want to they teach about the importance of being part of God's, you know, God's family and being part of the, the body of Christ, but, but they never interact in the church, in community. Like have, do you actually know what you're talking about if you haven't lived it? Because what we see in Scripture is truth. It's right 
But as I've said many times, when we, flawed human beings, try to do what the Bible says is true and is right, it will be messy and it will be weird and it will lead to awkward conversations. It will, it will be all these things that the Bible doesn't say these things are going to happen, but they're going to happen. They will. It's because we're human beings and, and we're not perfect. We are different. We're going to say the wrong things. You know, some of you people who are like really old, you know, not like me, like I try to stay young and hip, so I keep up with all the latest lingo. But some of you, without knowing it, use words that just are, you don't know what they mean. Of course, they meant whatever you thought they meant for, you know, 50, 60, 70 years, but you were sleeping when the meaning changed. I mean, if you didn't know this, you should know this, that, that for certain younger generations, like, like what they feel is like not a proper way and of communicating is a phone call. For people my age and older, if I have something important to communicate to you, I'm going to call you and talk to you on the phone, especially if it's kind of personal and emotional. It's different. It's changed. But if you haven't really, if you've been kind of ignoring what's going on in the world, what, what are you going to do if, if more and more people are communicating via texting and you still feel like you got to write a letter and put a stamp on it, great, do it, but just know you're missing out on a lot of communication that's taking place in the world. We have to live. And, and when we try to interact, generations, different ethnicities, all of that kind of mixes together different levels of education, different uh, economic levels. When you put all that together, it's going to be messy. But it's going to be a beautiful mess. Because it's, it's believers in Christ who are in the process of being transformed by his spirit, simultaneously in the process of becoming the body of Christ. It's a wonderful thing. But make no mistake, it's scary, it's weird, it's messy, it's awkward. It's the problem when churches are simply being built on people who are like me. If I just want to go to a church of people who are just like me, because that's, our, that's what we want, because that, that helps us not have to have those weird, awkward things. But for me, whether you're young or old, 
if you come to this church or to any other church that's a healthy church and you look at the diversity there and if you see diversity, this is what's going to happen. If you see diversity, it's not going to be dominated by people like you. That's the definition of diversity. You're not going to be able to come in and go, that's a bunch of old people or that's a bunch of young people or that's a bunch of, you know, you know, people that are, you know, kind of professionals or that's a, you know, you're not going to be able to see it because it's diverse. And we should look forward. We should look forward to kind of those weird, strange, awkward conversations that are going to come as we get to know people who are different from us. It's the miracle. It's not being perfect, but it's setting our hearts on studying and knowing and living truth. James, you know, we had our series on James a few months ago, and James says this very thing. He says, be doers of the word, not just hearers. It's, it's not a, like a, just an Ezra concept. God wants us to live his word and he provides teachers who have not just studied but have also lived his word to help us. To help us know his word, help us know truth. I'm going to kind of jump ahead to verse 25 but what's in between there in verse 25 is, is King Artaxerxes' letter to Ezra. And what he tells him is, he says, you know, anyone may go with you. Any of your people want to go, they can go. Um, That's a sacrifice on his part because these are good people. They've been contributing, you know, to his kingdom and now they're going to be able to go. He tells him, I want you to go and I want you to make inquiries according to God's law. And he's telling them, I want you to reestablish your people and your nation according to God's law. And then he says, I'm going to provide you silver and gold. And you use this to buy whatever sacrifices, offerings, anything else you need. He's going to return all the, all the you know, temple implements that have been taken. And he says, any leftover money, just you know, use it for whatever you think you need it for. And then he says, and by the way, no taxes on you. No taxes at all. And so we jump over that letter to get to verse 25 where this has all been written out. And it says, the, the letter continues. It says, and you, Ezra, according to the wisdom of your God that is in your hand, appoint magistrates and judges who may judge all the people in the province beyond the river, all such as know the laws of your God, And those who do not know them, you shall teach. Even the king is saying, teach. We're going to talk more about leaders God provides for us next week. But just to kind of introduce this, the idea here is that that God wants leaders like Ezra who will lead and teach according to his word. 
And that's what he's being told to do. He's saying, hey, appoint all these people. But he, he's, saying, he's not saying appoint a bunch of people who don't know God's word. No, the king knows. Like, they need to know God's word. Because God's word has been, if, if you just read the first five books, it tells you how you should organize as a people. It tells you what the law is. It tells you, even in some situations, what the punishments are. And so God is providing these, these leaders. And he's telling Ezra, those who don't know, teach them. Why teach them? Why teach the ones who don't know? Why teach the rest of the people? Isn't it enough just if the leaders know the law? And the answer is, of course, no. It's not enough. Because the society is not made up of the leaders. The nation that is to come is going to be the people living out God's word. And not only living out God's word, they're going to be doing all the work of what it means to be a new community, a new society. And those of you who were here long enough to remember when I f first came and even before I first came to this church, when you guys were just considering me to come I gave you this verse. I told you this verse because I, I, I said, if th this is my view of church leadership, that if you call me to be the pastor here, this is something you need to keep in mind. And it's from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. And he says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. I said, I'm not here to be the minister. I'm not here to make sure everybody gets visited. I'm not here to, make, you know, to be the one that, that tells other people about Christ and I'm the only one bringing them here. I'm not the one who, when somebody is lonely or sick, that I'm going to be the guy who's going to be the person who does all that. I'm going to do my share and more, make no mistake. But that's not why I'm here. If that's the case, I told them, don't ask me to come. My main job is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. What I've seen over the past five years, with the people who are already here, is an just increasing desire. It's not that they weren't doing anything before, they were. But an increasing desire, not just to serve, but to be equipped to serve. The other thing that I've seen happen here is people that come and visit our church and wanna stay at our church. They wanna come and stay because they know they're being equipped and they want to be somewhere where they can serve. This, there's places, I can tell you where they are later, where you can come to our church and hide and no one will notice you, okay? But, but we want our church to be a healthy church where we're all growing, but we're also all giving to one another. We're ministering to one another. And you see, you know, 
Ezra says in verse, uh, chapter 7, verse 28, he says, after getting all this from Artaxerxes, he says, I took courage for the hand of the Lord my God was on me, and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. Paul says something similar in his letter to Timothy, and this is believed to be one of the last letters that Paul wrote. And he's, he's you know, probably very close to being executed, and he's writing from some form of imprisonment. And, you know, if you back up, you can, you'll, you'll hear more about Paul writing about to, to Timothy, and Timothy was like, his, was like his spiritual son. He had brought him to Christ, and he had, he had discipled him and nurtured him. And he had written about, you know, his, Timothy's mother and his grandmother, and, and how he's continuing in that, and how much they invested in his life. And then you get down to verse 13, and he says this. He says, follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Timothy, you're a pastor now. So many people have poured into your life. They've deposited into your life. Guard that deposit. Don't take it for granted. Don't sit around thinking you're, you know, you're who you are because it's you. You know, you've worked hard. You've studied. You've accomplished. You've sacrificed. Remember the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it. Timothy is going to be this pastor. He's going to be this, this teacher but he's saying, guard that deposit. You know truth. It's been given to you. Guard it. And then just a few verses later, he says this. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Paul gives he gives like, this is the plan. It's not a complicated plan. Jesus gave the apostles truth. The apostles have passed truth on to the church. Now you, Timothy, you're now like the second generation. You've been handed truth. You now take that truth and you give it to faithful people who will then teach others that truth. It's been the plan for 2,000 years. Why are we not the sole arbiters of truth? Why are we not left alone to do this job that we're inadequate to do? Well, you're not if you're a believer in Christ. See, Paul had written in this same chapter, he writes against you know, be careful about irreverent babble, about quarreling over words, about foolish, ignorant controversies. He talks about how, how some of these things, they spread like gangrene. 
And you guys know what gangrene is, right? When something gets infected, it gets gangrenous, it's really the only thing you can do is cut it out. It's deadly. And then he says this. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Paul's agreeing with what we see in Ezra. Set your hearts on knowing God's word. But then he talks about being a worker, someone who's doing God's word. See, this is the problem that we have in our world today, and it's not a new problem. It's been going on for a while where people think, even though they're not going to say this because it, doesn't, it sounds like prideful, but, but they act like they are the sole arbiters of truth. Therefore, they believe that their opinion, their opinion is truth. In fact, you will find people in the church and in other situations who will equate their opinion with someone's careful study, experience, and conclusion. And so with not much more than an opinion, they'll come and say, you're wrong. But make no mistake, those aren't the same things. Setting your heart on studying God's word and living it, and then teaching the truth is very different from just coming up with an opinion and saying, you have a right to your opinion and I have a right to mine. That's not what we find here. They're not the same thing. So what we've seen here from Ezra and in the New Testament, how do we escape from becoming the supreme authority in our lives? Well, One of them is this. Trust those who have set their hearts on studying, living, and teaching God's word. Trust those who have set their hearts on studying, living, and teaching God's word. And the second one, set your heart on studying, living, and teaching God's word. If you don't like the premium God places on teachers, teachers who study, live, and teach God's word, if you don't like that, if you think like, well, you know, I, you know it's, uh, that just it sounds like you're, you're trying to be in control and tell everybody what to do. If you don't like that, then devote your life to studying and living and teaching God's word. I don't think that should be the reason you do it. I think you should do it because it's God's word and it's his truth and it's his living word and it's our only hope. It's what comes and meets the spirit in our lives and transforms us more into the the person and the image of Jesus Christ. It's what it does. It helps us to better represent God in this world. It helps us to do the job he's placed us in this world. That should be the reason we do it. 
But I'm going to tell any of you out there that don't want to do it for that reason, that if you just are just like, why should I have to listen to the pastor? Why should I have to listen to, to the, you know, the person who's devoted their lives to studying and living this? Why should I have to, you know, you know trust them? If that's what you feel, then you know what? You give your life to the study and living of God's word. Because here's what I think is going to happen. I think that imperfect teacher or preacher that you're not happy with, if he continues or she continues to study and live God's word, and you start doing it even if for the wrong reasons, someday in the future, you're going to meet and you're going to find out God's word has done a really similar work in both of your lives. And I will trust God's word. I will trust anyone who's willing to devote their lives to the study of God's word and living it, that God's word will do the work in their life that needs to take place. I said it's the importance of teachers. I could have said it's the importance of God's word. But just understand, we need teachers. We need people who are going to devote themselves, as Ezra did, to the study of his word and to, and to living his word in every situation. No compromise. Those kind of teachers they're going to be the kind that we should trust. 